so last week we started on uh, a look, a run through Philippians, uh, looking to run ahead um, of uh, Advent. I don't think we're going to get through all of it, so we may well come back to this after Christmas. Um, but last week we talked um, about thinking about what it meant for uh, our early brothers and sisters living in the city of Philippi, what it meant for them to be living in the Roman Empire, and with a little joke about, you know, the meme at the... Uh, that's going around. How often do men think about the Roman Empire? Well, how often did you think about the Roman Empire this week as you were thinking about Philippians? Because I know that you would have gone back and, and reread the first chapter of Philippians, if even just that, well, I just kept on going. Uh, the Roman Empire for us is also a bit of a, um, uh, uh, an image or metaphor too for, for state power um, and for the um, ongoing desire of people to extend their borders and to create um yeah create empires so it's not just a matter of history this is a matter of thinking ourselves into this letter but then asking by analogy what does this mean for our lives and our particular situation as well and so we saw last week that paul is writing this letter probably from ephesus probably in prison possibly not the worst prison um, situation that he'd been in we know the latter part of um, Second Timothy, that he was in a really bad situation and that he was basically um, requiring people, as people did in prison in the ancient world, for his friends to come and help him. Bring me a blanket, bring me something to keep me warm, bring me something to read, bring me the scrolls or the parchments. Um, and so they required help from uh, their brothers and sisters. And so this situation, earlier imprisonment, Paul himself also thanks the Philippians for their help for them in this current imprisonment even if it's a house arrest whatever it still means that he is not able to get about and share the gospel in the way that he would like as christ's ambassador his apostle um, the apostle of the king jesus um, he's about going about and creating these little colonies note that little colonies of the christian empire you might say the non-violent empire around um, the mediterranean and he hopes beyond that as well so that's what paul is, is um longing for but here he is cooped up um in house arrest or some other form of imprisonment but he says my situation is actually in god's providence is actually meant that no the gospel continues to spread and even um in these strange situations that there are people that oppose him in some form are also preaching um christ hoping, he says, to add to his uh, affliction, his suffering and in, in imprisonment. But whatever, the main thing is the Messiah is being preached. And because of this, he says, he rejoices. So we got, um, we got about as far as that last week. And so we're now uh, down to uh, verse uh, 19, which is going to be a, a very interesting one to look at. Um, through to the end of the chapter. We're not going to make it through to the, through the whole reading um, today. Um, so note that, that, um, that one of the big themes out of Philippians is the fact of joy. Uh, rejoicing, joyfulness in the gospel. Joyfulness, rejoicing in Christian fellowship. Rejoicing in the mission of God in the world. And so because of this, he says, he rejoices, Christ is proclaimed, he will continue to rejoice I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance or salvation. 
just meaning that he's pretty confident that he's going to get out of this house um, arrest. But there's going to be a bit of a rhetorical um, device he's going to use in a, in a moment. Um, but just remember this at the start. He's pretty confident that because of uh, their prayers and their God's provision of, very unusual phrase, only ever used here, the spirit of Jesus Christ. So um, normally you would see the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, and, um, and here, one and only time that I can certainly think of, the spirit of Jesus Christ. So God's provision, or the old, good old King James used to say, the supply, which sounds a bit vague to us, so better, yeah, they got the provision of, of, of or from the spirit of Jesus Christ that he will in no way be ashamed. This is an important word, one that we don't always get altogether because we think about, um, say, Romans chapter 1, 16, you know, the gospel is the power of God, you know, salvation, and I'm not ashamed of it. And we sort of read that in a kind of a modern, individualistic way is imagining that I'm not embarrassed. You know, like, oh, oh dear, the gospel's so embarrassing. Um, whereas instead, the idea of shame uh, is contrasted with honour. So the question then becomes, what is it that you exalt or later here? We'll talk about boasting, another word which is out of kilter with us. But the idea is that he will not be ashamed. He will not have invested his life into the gospel and be basically put to shame. God has not come through. God has not provided what he needed. God has not provided the salvation. He's not provided the fellowship, the um, covenant faithfulness, all those different things. So he will not be ashamed. Um, instead, God will actually come through for him. So he eagerly expects and hopes that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. And I think that really, um, you know, we can talk about, uh, think about Paul over there, an apostle. He's doing his thing. We sit back, we cheer, clap. Good on you, Paul. Um, but surely there is an enormous uh, example for all of us, no matter what our particular place within God's people is, whatever our particular ministry or vocation that God has put us in, this overarching um, way of expressing the Christian life, I think, is, um, is fundamental for us all. And I actually find it quite um, encouraging and exciting, although I actually see what's coming up also um, in light of this. What is it I'm talking about? Um, the idea that Christ will always be exalted through me in, in my body, that is, in my life, in the world. Christ will be exalted. It doesn't mean, uh, therefore, that someone has to go around the whole time reading out scripture to people, because that's the only way that Christ could be exalted, but through one's words, the manner of their life, also the sharing of the gospel, but possibly more uh, important, sharing of the gospel in connection, integrated with a life that actually exalts Christ because it looks like Christ. Of course, we know from the reading there as well where this is heading, Philippians chapter 2, the centre you might say of Philippians, this great hymn or poem or however you want to frame it, about the Christ who does not seek to seize equality with God but instead empties himself and becomes in the form of a servant. That Christ, who we understand in that way, is the one that we exalt in our body for our manner of life and in our speech and in our proclamation or sharing in whatever form of the gospel.
Now, I think I might cheat a little bit. I was going to do this after, but I'm going to do a bit of a spoiler. It's a bit of a spoiler if you're coming to a Romans Bible study as well. Let's have a look at this. Talking about the gospel, like we said last week, think about the gospel. Paul didn't get locked up because he was talking about, hey, you can have a personal relationship with God in a world of many gods. Um, and it wasn't, there's plenty of ways in which the gospel could be, um, you know, if that was the kind of thing it was, could easily be contained with the Roman Empire, it would not have been a threat. It's just another private club, it's another group of uh, spiritual people having their own experience in their own life. Instead, the message of Christ, which is the anointed one, the King, the Messiah, is a threat, as it said in the book of Acts, you know, was it quoted last week? These people that are turning the world upside down elsewhere have now come here and they are disobeying the decrees of Caesar and they say there is another king, Jesus. They didn't pull that out of thin air. That is, as you look through the book of Acts, what the Christians are saying, what they're proclaiming. Christ, this Jewish man, son of David, who was killed, has actually been raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the creator God and is now lord over everything. Okay, well, that's pretty explosive because, for many reasons, this is an inscription that you find in different parts of uh, the Mediterranean. There's two complete copies, I think, still around, um, inscribed. Let's have a read of that. Proclamation of Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor at the time of the birth of Jesus, and then all the Caesars follow in uh, his train. Um, since the providence that divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus. Hey! Oh, two cheers for Augustus then. Whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a saviour. Hey! Who put an end to war and will order peace. Hey! Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good tidings, Evangelion, gospel, same word, not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future, so certainly not a Jewish uh, Messiah raised from the dead, and since the birthday of the god Augustus, First brought to the world good tidings, residing in him for that reason with good fortune and safety. The Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year in all the cities should begin on 23rd September, the birthday of Augustus. So just a quick uh, note for the newsletter, we're now uh, changing our dates and times to centre around the great uh, benefactor uh, Caesar Augustus. Okay, so notice there a couple of words that... Um, pop out, one being um, Saviour, so Sotir, um, from which we get the word salvation uh, in the New Testament, but perhaps more importantly this notion of good tidings, gospel, good news, the Evangelion. And so what, you know, it's uh, not that simply the Christians are reacting or responding using those words, but that simply this is the kind of words you use for your king, the true one, and so here we have um, the Christians and the Romans um, with contrarian views about who has the true good news, who is the true saviour of the world, 
and um, what is this new age that is being brought into the world? Is it the new age of Rome, the Roman peace, Pax Romana, um, or is it in fact the peace of Jesus Christ, the Pax Christi, the Lord, Messiah, Jewish Messiah is the one who's bringing the true peace into the world. And so whose gospel are you going to believe? And so the Philippians, as living in a Roman colony, founded by um, Praetorian guard, exalted uh, Roman soldiers, trusted to guard the emperor and his officials, which gospel are you going to live? And more than that, because it's not just about an individual choice of different religions, you're asking, am I going to live completely enmeshed in the culture in which I live, in which case certainly emerging more and more in Philippi and other parts of the Roman Empire, the Caesar cult, the worship of the emperor as himself a god? Are you just going to enmesh in that and go, ah, it doesn't matter? A bit like in Corinth, you know, ah, food in, temple, in you know, temples where food is being offered to an idol just food you have to have to grapple with how all these things work there's no such things as living private religious spiritual life or public religions and then politics over here all of these things are intermeshed and so saying that there is another king is not just a religious claim it's also a political claim so the romans there might be an imaginary political claim like yeah okay there's a, you have a, um, a Jewish Messiah up in heaven uh, watching over you as the true Caesar. Well, let us show you what true power looks like, what Caesar really looks like. And, of course, a lot of the Christians um, had to live as martyrs. And, in fact, that is partly what we find here happening with Paul. Paul has to ask the question about living or dying. Will he survive this? He's confident that he will get out. He's confident that he will be released. But life is cheap in the Roman world. Thank goodness he's a Roman citizen. Um, but life is still cheap. And he, they could just go, no. You lose. Um, we don't find in your favour. And uh, if you're a troublemaker, we'll get rid of you. Preaching this uh, alternate gospel. So often there's said, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not is a, um, a claim of the Christians, and I think that's, uh, that's uh, fair enough to say. The true Lord of the Lord is Jesus. So what does it mean now um, for Paul in prison? This is one of those texts, so this is, you know, step aside a minute for a bit of self-reflection on how we read the Bible. And the thing that I'm going to read now, this little part, ask yourself what your immediate thought is as to what this is, What's it referring to? And then even perhaps in the light, sorry for visitors, but what we've been looking at over the last couple of months, um, think about what it means in relationship to the idea of resurrection. Okay, so let's move on. He goes on to say, I really expect and hope that I'll not be ashamed, sufficient courage that Christ will always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So now he says, life or death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
So if, I'm, if I go on living in the body, this means fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two, a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain. We'll come to what he talks about there in a moment. What's he talking about? Depart and be with Christ. What does that mean? Any thoughts? You always remember this is always a trap. Okay, so that any time the preacher asks you, what do you think about that? Does any of you go, no, not right. Good luck. Be brave. Have a go. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm talking about dying and I'm, I'm going to th- throw it in for, for somebody. Sorry, my, my hearing there, but I can hear that there's some uh, answers back there. Dying, going to heaven. Yeah? Yay! Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yay! Dying, going to heaven. So this is only one of a couple of places where that inference actually can be found. But it's become such an ingrained part of our, um, our thoughts and our traditions and our beliefs that actually the main thing about Christianity is believe in Jesus, who is the correct way to God and to get to heaven when you die, um, that's it, the end. Life in between, be good, be obedient and um, show that you love God and show that you love Christ in a way that you're being thankful. But the main thing is, let's get out of here and upon our death, go to heaven. Not fair also for people who die before other people because they get to have heaven longer. I guess the difference matters less one million years from now, but even still, not fair. What is this actually about? As we've seen before, and as we'll go on to see, so if you've got your Bible, please tell me you do have your Bible. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Because it's all too easy to project upon the text a kind of idea that we already have and to think this is the main game. We're going to come back and, and look at it a bit more closely. So just look for a moment at the end of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul expresses his hope for us. Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. So as Paul has said virtually everywhere else, the hope is resurrection. That in the end, even those who, who die in Christ will not be forgotten, will not be left behind. Um, didn't mean to make left behind reference. but Anyway, that's an in-joke. Okay, so um, they're not going to get left behind. They're not going to be forgotten. They instead will be included on the last day, the day of Christ, which we looked at last week, the day which is coming, they will be included in that as well through resurrection. The question always comes up, as it did in Paul's early, probably earliest letter, First Thessalonians chapter 5. 
that they says, I don't want you to worry about those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died. And so there he talks about how the dead, that the trumpet will sound, the law will descend, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, we may be hoping that he's still around at that point, but anyway, we or those who are alive will be transformed, changed and caught up in the air, heaven and earth coming together um, and will forever be with the Lord. And at that point, he's thinking, again, what's the focus? The focus is the resurrection of the dead. And those who are alive, who haven't died yet, need to be killed so they can also rise. No, thankfully, they will be transformed like the resurrected and they will also um, rise to meet the Lord. But you kind of still want to know a little bit what happens to people. What's the experience of death? And the thing is actually, you know what? The New Testament doesn't tell us. And the New Testament largely isn't even interested in that. Partly because if you make what happens when you die the main thing, you've broken in one sense a connection between what God intends to do for his whole creation the new creation, and what it means to be already entering into that now through faith in Christ and being in Christ and being part of the inauguration of the new creation. It isn't that, that's an interesting thing to happen later. Get saved now. The main thing is go to heaven. But here he does use something like that language, doesn't he? And it is deliberately ambiguous, I think. Because I think Paul doesn't probably know. Um, But notice it's not focused on anything to do with actually being relocated to heaven, even though Christ is at the right hand of God. The focus is on Christ. In other words, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, I know the next thing from here is I will be with Christ. Now, theological brackets here... um, some Christians, Martin Luther, for instance, and um, some of the Anabaptists believed in the idea that, you know, we often got called soul sleep. That is that when one dies, one's out of the picture, waiting for the resurrection, and then one is there at the last day. Um, others say, oh, no, there's a separable part of our existence, whether we call it soul spirit or something, that will, in a disembodied way, be preserved with Christ, with God, awaiting the resurrection of the body. Or, um, no, it's just that we die and God will raise us up. No speculation about um, different uh, entities, soul, spirit versus body, etc. So there's a, a variety of different beliefs that Christians have about that. And it's all very interesting. It's all very hard to work out from Scripture, I have to tell you. If you actually want to come up with a kind of a nice, neat picture and people have attempted uh, such, um, it's just really hard and, and not it doesn't just sort of fit all nicely because that's not the focus. The focus isn't on the destination, it's on the person, it's on the relationship and how God will bring that about in Christ through the resurrection, the things that we do know that are promised, that's what we focus on. Okay, but now it wouldn't be fair to me if I didn't at least mention a, um, a couple of other uh, texts. So one other, again, a little bit um, later from his first um, comments, he talks about the idea of being, um, as here, to live as Christ, to go and be with Christ, okay? So like 
in one sense, I'm not with Christ now because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is ascended. So I will depart and be with Christ, meaning that in one sense, I'm not with Christ now. But also, a little bit earlier, the spirit of or sent by Jesus Christ is actually here with me. So um, that's part of, you know, the dynamic of salvation history and Trinitarian theology come together. Yes, Jesus, the man, has ascended. We are not with him. But he has sent his spirit, and so we are never alone. His spirit is with us, the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about sort of an inner and outer reality. He says that in one sense now we are um, present in our bodies and absent from the Lord. And that we hope one day to be, oh, that one day we will be, not that we hope to be, but that he'll be absent from his body and its present configuration and present with the Lord. So absent from the Lord now, present in this body, present with the Lord later, and in what form? Well, he says, I don't want to be unclothed, like not to have a body, but rather to be clothed upon, he says, so that uh, mortality will be swallowed up by life. So not that we get rid of the body because it doesn't matter, but that we, if we're going to live in proximity and in relationship to God in the future and new heavens and new earth, I need to be clothed upon with immortality. Again, you don't real. All you, what do you get there? We're not with the Lord right now, but we have His Spirit with us. We will be with the Lord. To be with the Lord in the future means that I need to be like His body, to have immortality to swallow up mortality and corruption. So resurrection, presence with Christ in the future. And then apart from that, you don't have anything in, um, in the New Testament, particularly about what it actually looks like to live between one's death and the resurrection. Hints, clues, thoughts, not a lot, but always focused on Christ. So we can live with that diversity of opinion there. We can live with that diversity of belief about what what it actually looks like and then um, on the last day plus one you can talk to each other about who was right um but yeah we don't know so don't read that into there don't read that as paul saying i could be here or i could go to heaven and going to heaven's a lot better it's about being with christ and we've seen there we're waiting for the resurrection and for christ to return to appear and to transform everything, like he says, including our bodies, there at the end of chapter 3. Okay, I'm just going to make it a bit more complicated. We will get to this. I'm not going to explain it today. Have you ever read something in Scripture and you thought, phew, this is not fitting with what I think at all, um, or what I was taught, and then someone comes along and goes, aha, and they have what is called the saving interpretation, which doesn't necessarily come out of the text itself, but kind of says, eh, do it this and that, and maybe it's... Uh, and then, there you go. You can continue believing what you believe. Um, don't look too closely at the text. Um, now, here's one that we'll get to probably a bit later. Not today. Chapter 3, verse 
7 onward. So re read it in, in your Bible, or if you haven't got one, then try not to read too fast. 3.7. Yet whatever gains I had, these have become, uh, I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Always Christ at the centre. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I regard them as rubbish. I'll, I'll save my schoolboy comment for what that really means for later. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God, oh, NIV, um, righteousness of God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. That kind of makes sense already. Then the next one says, if somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, that sounds very worksy to me. And what does Paul mean? He's basically going to earn his way to the resurrection. Um, all right, good saving interpretation. No, that would be really weird to base something, that kind of idea on, on one text, so, so not that. Um, but there is something about the present life and cruciformity, living in conformity to the sufferings of Christ following the pattern of Jesus, which he says in some form means him attaining the resurrection of the dead. Not a merit thing. It's not like Paul has um, gone ding, 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 you have won 100,000 points because you have done this and your prize, your prize is the resurrection of the dead. There is still something that connects the life that we live with the reality of the resurrection and Paul goes on to say, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, yeah, uh, or I've already reached the goal, but I press to, on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, you might immediately go, there, oh, heavenly call, so that means going to heaven. Uh, no, um, but it is the call that comes from heaven, yes, from Jesus Christ. Um, we will look at that again more in detail later. But what I want to say is that if you just jump to going, oh, yes, that, I know what that means already, and don't look at it in the context of the letter. There's more to do with resurrection and so forth happening there as both a hope and uh, also a cosmic, you might say, hope in terms of God, uh, Jesus raising um, uh, his people from the dead to be conformed to his likeness and also to subject everything else um, to his rule, that second coming. So the future hope is still the main thing. And this text is telling you what? Nothing about what it's like necessarily between now and that event but in some form or another, you will be with Christ. Okay. Now, I'll sort of lab labour that um, a little bit. Yes, you did. Um, because it's so ingrained in the way that people talk about things. Okay. 
in scripture, as we've seen over the last um, couple of months, heaven and earth are, are designed to be brought together. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Heaven is, you might say, God's dimension of things. It's not a long way away. It's not far away. Um, you might say, a little bit like in Revelation. Revelation, again, this is just imagery, so don't take it literally, but gives you the picture almost that you could tear back the sky like a scroll and there's heaven. There is God's dimension of things. There are God's angels, angels and whatnot uh, are all there. It's not a long way away, but it's something which awaits its union um, with earth. As Paul puts it in uh, Ephesians, the hope is heaven and earth coming together in one head that is in Jesus Christ. All things. Okay, well, let's move on beyond that because as I said, his point is not to explain what it looks like, it's to say what's ahead is Christ and yet as he says here so I'm exalting Christ in my body whether by my life or my death for me to live is Christ and then to die is gain as well and the interesting little thing here is that Paul um, have you ever had a, um, a, a little witty saying that's come to you and you thought saving that up hoping for the right opportunity to use that um, worse if somebody interrupts you and you're about to say and you go, oh, no, it's past Makes me wonder whether Paul has something like this because it's interesting that what he says here, to live is Christ, is actually, sounds very similar to a common phrase in the Roman world. So instead of uh, zoe Christos, the saying is zoe Christos, meaning life is good. So life is good. Now that life is Christos. So a dead joke there in the New Testament. Good stuff. But for him, it's not just about living the good life, that Christ himself is um, that good life, you might say. To live is Christ. It's the totality of who we are. It's not a part, it's not like uh, there's a part of our life in that missing piece and the missing piece gets filled up with Jesus, now I'm complete. No, it's like, no, your life will get turned upside down and so forth and a new king enters into your life you're no longer the king in the western world you're no longer the king and someone else is now calling the shots but guess what not a kind of a terrible uh you know uh, malevolent dictator or something instead it is one who rules is also the one who serves the servant king the one who gives his life for us so it's not a tragedy it's in fact discovering what the meaning of one's life really is all about so to live is christ and to die is gain because of course to go and be with christ better by far this is like say the rhetorical thing it's not as though paul then goes mm, be with christ or come and help the philippians really not sure um it's kind of like a false dilemma in one sense. And the thing is, it's not actually his choice, it's more his preference. If it's his choice, that makes it sound like he's about to kill, uh, about to kill himself. Um, you know, what's better, to come help the Philippians or depart and be with Christ? Oh, that's strange, the message, the letter ends, yeah, just there. 
No, um, in fact, I say, it's a sense a false dilemma. Better by far, don't worry, I'm not worried about dying, but it is more necessary that I remain in the body. Thinking about where this is going, Philippians chapter 2, we see why the example of Christ had the same mind as this, the one who is obedient unto death, one who takes on the form of a servant and lives his life in that way. His apostle, his messenger, will seek to live the same. Some have said Paul doesn't seek an honourable death, he seeks to live a cruciform life. He doesn't want to die like Jesus, he wants to live like Jesus who gave himself in suffering and death to serve others, not for himself. So it's more necessary to remain. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain. So there you go. You know, you know it was kind of a rhetorical thing. I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith because we do need to progress in the faith, don't we? We can't just be living on an experience we had X number of years ago. We can't be even living on the understanding we had X number of years ago. We want to push in. As Jesus said, if you're my disciples, continue in my word and know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's good. It's good news. But press in. Don't draw back. As Hebrews says, you know, those early, some of the early Jewish Christians who were under pressure from others, drawing back into their former mode of life. Instead, no, press in. Don't draw back. We need to do that. We need to keep progressing in our faith and there is joy in it. And he says, so that through being uh, with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound on account of me. So I just want to quickly say that that boasting in that case is not like showing off. It's not like uh, an inappropriate um, claim about oneself. Some people try to use the word exalting, which also isn't kind of natural to us either. But you'll see the word boasting come up quite a lot in the New Testament and it's basically saying, look how good Jesus is. Look how amazing he is. Look at his power. Look at his love. Look at what he has achieved for us. Nothing that we were able to do. He's done it. Wow. So it's more like that and it's connected with glory and honour. So basically you are attributing um, rightly glory and honour to uh, to someone. And in this case, of course, um, to Christ. It's almost time to escape. He goes on and says, whatever happens. So he's always said what he's confident about. But look, whatever happens, it's not based on the outcome of what's going to happen to me, but whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that then if I come and see you or only hear about you from a distance, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, not being afraid or intimidated in any way by those who oppose you. Interesting word in there, conduct yourselves. Um, based on the same words where we get the word politics from, politumer. Um, and it means your public life, your political life. Now, it doesn't just mean politics the way we think about it, but um, acting in this sense as a citizen, your citizen life. Now think about what this, um, 
this theme that keeps playing off um, gospel and citizenship in Philippians, thinking about the context in which we've said, your public life, your political life, your citizen life, make sure that it is worthy of the gospel of Caesar, of Augustus, or his descendants, no, the gospel of the Messiah. Have your public citizenship life worthy of the gospel of the Messiah. Because as you just saw in um, uh, the end of chapter 3, we are citizens of heaven. Meaning that that's where our membership and our authority and all those things come from. Already there now, not that we have to go there to live it, but we already participate in the life of heaven now here on earth. We are citizens of heaven. Make sure that public citizen life is worthy of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. What we do, <laughs> just keep, keeps coming back to this, isn't it? We can talk about what Jesus has accomplished for us and we need to do that first and foremost, but there's not a full stop at the end of that. There's a dot, 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 and therefore, as it says so many times in the New Testament, therefore, Ephesians, got four, three chapters of the glory of God's work um, through Christ, therefore, work worthy of the calling that you've received. There's always a therefore that comes after that. And so our lives need to reflect the reality of the gospel. Meaning that, what does it mean to be to give our allegiance, our full trust, our full fidelity to Jesus Christ. What does that look like? What is our character? What are the might say the what are the virtues that actually need to be shown in our lives that actually make sense of our allegiance to Jesus? Is Jesus a kind of a hook um, now? I can basically do what I want. I know I'll be forgiven. I'm in Jesus. When God looks at me, He sees Jesus. Well, it doesn't exactly work like that. Um, topic for another time I guess but um, let's just conclude with this is to say whatever that happens our life is to reflect these realities like with Paul to part and be with Christ it's far better yep going into God's future however we, uh, we get to that future it's with Christ but to actually be with Christ and want to be with Christ and to be, in a sense, in love with Christ means that our life now needs to reflect that reality. Not as a means to another end, it is the nature of the relationship itself. To live for the Christ who loves us means that to live in relationship with Christ means to show love to him and to all those, including his enemies, to show the same love that he shows to them. I just end with an exhortation, just quoting straight from Paul. I know. I think I know. No, I do. I know. I know. That you all together will stand firm in the one spirit, the spirit of Christ. That you will strive together, work together, expend that effort together as one in unity for the faith of the gospel of Christ. The true gospel not that fake one, not the other Gospels that get announced in uh, advertising day by day what the good life looks like, what our, um, you know, what our best life might look like.
for us who see beyond and through all of those things, striving for this one faith of the gospel. Don't be intimidated for any way by those who oppose us. It has been granted for you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, yay, it's thinned it there, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I have and now hear that I have. We've been called to a cruciform life through the cruciform Messiah, but our hope is we'll be exalted in Christ in the resurrection on the day of Christ. Let us live with that reality in our minds and live our life conscious of giving an account of our lives before the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. Sorry, not sorry. Um, <laughs> have you got to close with a prayer, um, Beverly? Okay, let's, um, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we look uh, at the amazing work that you have done through history and through the people of Israel and through them to bring your son, the Messiah, into the world, suffered, was faithful to you, died, and you exalted him by rising from the dead. And that is the story that which we are bound to now. We are bound as we pledge our faith and trust and allegiance to our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at the examples of the early Christians that are preserved for us here in Scripture, we know that we're a part of them as well, not in the same setting, but in the same world. And so we ask that you will help us in our imagination to be able to see what are the ways that we can live fully, freely and faithfully in Christ in the present world. Help us to embrace that in Jesus' name. Help us by your spirit, we ask. And now as we go, we ask that you will give us opportunities to share good news about our King, Jesus, and the love that he has for all, and the reshaping and discipleship which he um, offers to us. And we look forward to the new world, the new creation, in which all things will be completed in Jesus' name. Amen. Um,